Welcome to this episode of Professors, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature, all discussed through the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra, and big surprise, I've been watching Grey's Anatomy. No one is surprised. (laughs) But I've also been watching some shows on HBO, Silicon Valley, Watchmen, Succession, and I saw the new Little Women movie. Of course you did. And, And I'm keeping up with The Good Place. And we're back from Christmas break, so I'm guessing you also watched some Hallmark Christmas movies? I, I watched more Lifetime Christmas movies. Oh. I know the distinction between the two probably is meaningless to you. Absolutely meaningless. Uh, but there is some, we've talked about it anyway, sure. mostly Lifetime Christmas movies. And I'm Misty, and I've been watching The Good Place, Bob's Burgers, Billy on the Street, because it's on Netflix now, and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I love Billy on the Street. I love Billy on the Street. It's amazing. So we wanted to start with what we've been watching for a few reasons. One, we want to counteract, I guess, just the general yuckiness of the whole world. Also, we were on break for several weeks, so we had time to watch things. I always have time to watch things. I don't. Uh, because I make the time. Plus, because <laughs> it's so important. Uh, I feel like, and maybe it's just a matter of perception. I feel like there's more things to watch now because we have oh, absolutely Disney Plus and Netflix, all those HBO Hulu, shows, Amazon. So just I just feel like we're swimming in content, I guess. And I think another reason to start here, because even though we are academics, and some academics will look down, you're, their- you're definitely an academic. I'm. Some people in our professions would look down their noses at yes, this. Yes, yes. But as we've discussed before, television reflects American culture. And helps shape it. Yes. Yeah. So it's important to look at what we're consuming yeah. and what these ideas are being put out into mm-hmm. the universe. Mm-hmm. And do we agree with them or not? Yeah. And there are some, there are some good shifts in how things are made and who's making them. And... Uh, no shifts whatsoever in who gets nominated for awards. As far as we can tell, we will talk about the dumpster fire Oscar nominations. Not good. In just a moment. Just not good. I don't know if you know this, but we started 2019. We started last year with an article from Time telling us that the era of female run TV shows was ending. Which is interesting because I didn't know it had started. I had no idea that it had ever occurred. The Era of female-run TV shows. So women got, like, five shows. And that made it an era. I mean, and we're talking about... Out of, like, 500. We had 5% or something. I guess what prompted the article that this so-called era was ending was Orange is the New Black was ending. uh, Scandal had ended. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was coming to an end. Yeah. Broad City, I guess, also ended that year. So I guess that was the era, and now it's over. So So we had like a (laughs) five-year, four-year run. But, you know, there have been a lot of issues with with TV, even if we were in the era of female-run TV there for a while. you have something in the notes here that just is screaming out at you. It blows my mind. So I, I watch Grey's Anatomy, and even if you don't, this is fascinating. The characters um, talk about their sex lives. Okay. That's one of the cool things about the show is that women and men talk about relationships and sex, and they talk about pleasure and enjoyment. And um, and it's also a medical show. And it is also a medical show. The, women, the female characters never really talk about their vaginas using the word vagina they say vajayjay which is so much worse to me 
And I thought it was like a, an artistic choice. Well, I thought it was like this is the, I don't know, the slang, slang word in the yeah. hospital. It was funny the first time it got used because it was like a person who is uncomfortable with language like that. And they use that word. And then I thought we're just kind of riffing on that. But it's because they weren't allowed to say vagina more than a couple of times per episode. I just do not understand that. And so the it's a body even, part. Even when two women are talking to each other about sex lives and they'll say something like down there, you know? Have you ever like seriously, not ironically, used the term vajayjay in your life? Absolutely not. And but but again, they're doc they're surgeons, so I feel like they should be okay with a lot of words <laughs> with the word vagina. We are and we're just teachers professors that's true so i also heard and i'm not as familiar with this show that crazy ex-girlfriend wanted to make some kind of reference to period sex yes they had a whole song called period sex but the cw did not let them ever air it so fans of the show you can actually go on all 12 of you we're a small but loud group you can go on youtube and you can actually find the whole song because the creators made it they put it out there it becomes a running joke in the show that we know as fans, they know as producers of this work, that song cannot get on TV. But they would start it and they would sing like one line <laughs> and you'd be like, maybe this is the episode it's going to happen. And it never did. No. They were not allowed to sing about period sex. Even though SVU can portray sexual horrible, violence. Horrible things. Sure, sure. Okay. That's, that's great. That sounds right. Something natural that happens. Right. It's too graphic. Okay. In 2017, 90% of showrunners were white and 80 of them were male. So if there's ever going to be an era of female-run TV, it hasn't happened yet. And there are some success stories. And we've talked about this before when we talk about women at work. If you are successful, then you can build on that success. And right. so what happens is this is a very kind of self-feeding machine. And so men who are successful on a show as a writer or producer can very easily get a contract to make a show. I think Mike Shore is a great example of that. Yes. Because nobody... He's a sure thing, right? He made Parks and Rec. He was on the office staff. So they're like, sure, you want to make a crazy show about heaven and hell, high concept? Sure, because... But nobody else was going to get that greenlit. Right. So he's... I mean, they... They want to minimize risk, which we understand, but the fewer women who've ever been allowed an opportunity, I mean, it's self-perpetuating. And that wasn't a criticism of Mike Shore, by the way. No, he's it was great. a criticism of the system. And he does more to be authentically inclusive than most TV showers. But because there are TV so... showers? Showrunners? Showrunners. There you go. There are so few women yeah. that if you fail, it's not a personal failure. It's a failure of your sex or gender. Yeah. Whether as if we, a male fails. We gave, we gave girls a chance. Exactly. Exactly. So some women are kind of chipping away at this. So Phoebe Waller-Bridge did Fleabag. Amazon, which, right? Yes. Okay. And so now she's the head writer of Killing Eve. Okay. With Sandra Oh. Yes. You know people. I know things. You know, Genji Cohan made Weeds on Showtime a long time ago. And then she made Orange is the New Black. Right. And now she's executive producing Glow. Which is a female, as a comedy about female wrestlers. Yes. Amy Poehler, who of course is very well known for Parks and Rec and other things, she helped b- make sure that Broad City got yes. produced. 
and she co-wrote Russian Doll. Did you know that? I did know that. I didn't because I thought she only did things that were funny. And there are, you know, there are other writers. So Carly Rae is a writer who worked on Mad Men and then she started working on HBO shows. So she worked on Westworld and Watchmen and she's working on maybe a Game of Thrones spinoff. Oh, okay. So women are making their way through this very complex system. I think maybe we will get to an era of... Maybe some comparable representation or in just front of parody, yeah, gender parody. But five female-run TV shows is not the era of female-run. No, it's not. TV. And to say it's over is just so dramatic. Yeah, when obviously those people that were producing those shows are going to go on to do other things, and also there are other women. There's well, right, there's yes. more than the five. Exactly. But I'm just saying, like you, you can't just say, oh, their careers ended in 2019, and that mm-hmm. is it. We are done. Orange is the New Black is off the air. So, well, not off the air, but is off. It's not making new content. Yeah. So, I mean, there We're we done. go. Women had their go. So, this time last year, at the beginning of 2019, Variety published an article called Movies Featured More Female Protagonists in 2018, But It's Not All Good News. Can they not just take that article and just change the year? And it always would be. There's a very similar one we're going to talk about from this month. Yes. Okay. So we just just change the year and it'll be the same article. Yes. And so a lot of this information comes from the same study from San Diego State University. Yes. Because that's the place to go to get this information. Yes. And so it says the percentage of females as speaking characters and major characters remained relatively stagnant. So the reason it seemed like there was a lot of progress in 2018 is we had movies like Halloween, Stars Born with Lady Gaga, Crazy Rich Asians, and those made it seem like there were a lot of sh- movies featuring prominently featuring female lead or female co-lead. And so there is some increase, as you said, but it's not a huge increase. We're not talking leaps and bounds. Right. So really, 2018 is the year where things aren't what they look like. It looks like when you look at publicity or when you think about movie posters or the year-end wrap-up in film, it looks like it was a banner year for female leads in movies. But the truth is, it really wasn't if you look at the numbers. So this year, this month, Variety published another article This one's called From Captain Marvel to Little Women, Record Number of Female Protagonists in 2019. So they cut off the, but it's not all good news. It's never all good news, obviously. Otherwise, our podcast would have to end. But (laughs) we solved all the problems and we're done. What's interesting is that just a few, just a few movies can make a perceivable statistical difference. So... For instance, Crazy Rich Asians made a difference in the numbers for that whole year of Asian American representation in film. Right, Just because the there's one so movie. few before right. that you can have this statistical anomaly. Yes. And it will skew the numbers for the whole year. And again, if I just look at the statistics, I'd be like, oh, we're increasing in Asian. And then this year, it went way down. Right. Because... There wasn't a crazy rich agents, too. Exactly. So uh, movies like Captain Marvel, Little Women, Frozen 2, and even Us, because they were so popular and successful, and because they didn't just have a female lead. I mean, Captain Marvel, it's almost... Yes. 100% of the time, a woman is on screen. 
Well, and Little Women, too, right? So many of those characters are female. Almost no men in that movie. Exactly. There's Timothy Chalamet and Bob Odenkirk randomly. So (laughs) I was not expecting him to be in the movie. So those movies, if you want to add up the percentages, are going to skew the results a little bit. So women did make unprecedented gains as the stars in top grossing films. That's good news. So in top grossing films, we went from 31% female leads to 40% female leads. So still not parody. But still a historic high. 43% of films featured male protagonists and 17% of films had ensembles. Okay. So it's close to parody, actually. It's 41% versus 43 without investigating how those ensembles are put together. Right. Um, But this is the better news, I think. 45% of female protagonists were in studio features and 55 were in independent features. And that is a big difference. That's absolutely a huge difference. Because before last year, you were twice as likely to see a female lead in an independent movie. And the reason that's important is more people see studio movies. More people saw Captain Marvel than saw Marriage Story, right? So if you're talking about a feature film... Then we're talking about representation that actually has the ability to change our culture. Because it's a wider, broader audience. And people talk about it, and there's posters about it, and kids go and see it. And it's not just art school kids that are going. (laughs) And people dress up as the character, and people at work have conversations about it. And even movies like Little Women, changing the expectation that that's only a story for girls, which we're going to talk about later. So those studio features having more female leads is a big deal i think i think this also shows that that old adage that men won't go see a movie with a female lead is changing absolutely it's this idea that women will watch anyone yes because we are told our whole lives to project ourselves into stories Mm -hmm. as we like read literature and all this yes as we read history even men are not confronted with that as early on right but again i think that's changing and so They're able to find stories and characters they relate to, even if it's mostly ladies in the movie. And I think if the story is a well-written, good story... It's just compelling. Yes. Anyone can connect with it. Yes. So you're still twice as likely to see a man on a screen as a woman if you just go into a movie theater and and look look up at the screen. Okay. And movies with women still had a lot of gender stereotypes. And this is this to me is very interesting. Female characters in movies are more likely than male characters to reveal or discuss their marital status. Interesting. Men are more likely than women to have an identifiable occupation. So they don't just say I came home from the office or I came home from work, but they talk about their job as an architect or an engineer. Male characters were more frequently depicted in the workplace than female characters. So like we might see a female character in a suit leaving the home, but we don't know where she goes or what she does. Right. But the male character, we will see him pull up in the car. Much more likely to see him at job. And like walk in and start like (laughs) typing or something. Yes. Okay. Yes. So women talk about their marriages more and men talk about their jobs more. Okay. We're looking mostly at like 60, 40%. So it's not huge discrepancies between. But it's still a gap. But there is a gap. Yes. Okay. Yes. So what the author of the study says is that social change is very difficult, occurs slowly, and almost never happens in a linear way 
So again, like the the Asian American representation, there's progress and there's backsliding. Right. Progress is stubborn, she said. It can take years, decades even, of sustained dialogue, activism, action to achieve change. Well, you know what we say. Progress, not perfection. Yes. So maybe we should trademark that or something. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we stole it from somebody, but sure, let's trademark it. Um, speaking of not perfect, let's talk about the Oscar nominations because they're a mess. They came out uh, wait, wait, a week you or two ago. Wait, support them, Allegra? I'm surprised. Shocked and surprised. I know. So no female directors nominated. And it's not like there weren't female directors making movies or good movies. And that's the thing, right? It's one thing in 1950 if no females are nominated. But it's another thing right. in 2019. Right. So a lot of the Best Picture nominees are not just about men. But I would say they are particularly masculine. Oh, I like the term you have here in our notes. I did in the notes. I said aggressively masculine. I like that term better because uh, that feels like somebody's just shoving it in your face. But it, they're at least particularly masculine. So they're movies with almost no women, and they're mostly about things that are traditionally masculine. Give me an example. Ford versus Ferrari. Okay, is a good movie which I enjoyed watching. It has Matt Damon okay. and Christian Bale, yep. who are both excellent, well-written. There's a wife, and she talks sometimes to to Christian Bale. But, I mean, all of the executives at Ford Motor Company are men. So when, when they go to meetings, it's all men. All of the executives at Ferrari are men. All of the people working on their racetrack are men, and the two stars are men. So it's historically accurate right, because it's right. telling a true story about Carol Shelby, but who is a man, despite the name Carol. Right. Just want to clarify, but um, it's it's very masculine. I don't. I, I do can't. Do you feel like it was written for a male audience, or do you feel like they're just trying to stay true to the historical record? Because I see those two things as being very different. I don't think that there is a way to tell that story with more women in it, to be honest with you. You'd have to change the whole context of the story. It's just like my issue with the story about the moon landing, right? right? Like, it's their rooms full of men. So either you fictionalize it, which they're not attempting to do, or you don't tell the story. Which is not obviously preferred either. Right. So I don't think there's a different way to make that movie, but I my hope is that in the future we're more interested in stories that do involve women because well, cuz we're not saying that there's not a space for that story, but we're saying there's space for other stories as exactly. well. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So Ford versus Ferrari, cool story, great movie, well made, probably in my opinion deserves a nominee or a nomination for best picture. But I think it's when in you a take it field. holistically. Look at the yeah. field. The next movie is The Irishman, which is like Robert De Niro, made by Martin Scorsese, also a, just about men. Right. Joker. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is about a man. Which is not to say it's a bad movie, right? It's just to say... it's. I mean, it, again, it's well made and it's well acted, but it's kind of about how toxic masculinity gets born. It's very... That one is aggressively masculine. Yeah, that one is steeped in masculinity. But I'm saying like that would still have a place to be nominated. I think it maybe it should be nominated. But if we have a holistic, balanced field, do you know what I'm saying? Yes. And the other thing is another movie nominated is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Which we've talked about. 
there are a hundred different ways you can make that movie so that it does have some kind of authentic representation of female characters. Sharon Tate is a very important part of the story in that movie. And she basically doesn't talk. And there are women at the Manson family who basically are just automatons, which I feel like there is a way to get some richer female representation into that movie because most of it is just like, again, Brad Pitt driving around in a car, which was the most interesting part of the movie, which he, by the way, just won a Screen Actors Guild Award for. And I don't think he's undeserving, but I think that's the kind of movie where it could have been made differently. Right. Joker has to be a story about a dude. Ford versus Ferrari has to be a, a movie about dudes. But do all of our movies have to be about dudes? Right. And can any of the movies that aren't just about dudes get nominated? Other movies that got nominated for Best Picture, Jojo Rabbit, which is a... World War II. It's a satirical Hitler story. World War II. I'm gonna, that's under the broad category of World War II. I guess. Little Women. Not World War II. Marriage Story, which we're going to talk about in detail later. But at the very least, Scarlett Johansson plays a female character who's a person. A right. full Balance, human nuance, person. Yes. 1917, definitely a movie, a history movie. World War One. <laughs> Same thing. And no, no, it's not. <laughs> but we'll move on. And Parasite. And Parasite, which I think is a horror movie. It's a Korean horror movie. I'm afraid of watching it, so I'm not 100% certain. It looks super scary. Um, five b- women are nominated for Best Actress. Wait, wait. We nominated women for something? I guess for we had to, right? Best Actress. Five women nominated for Best Actress. Four of them are white. Five Best Supporting Actor nominees all of them white, five Best Supporting Actress nominees, all of them white. And in fact, Scarlett Johansson was nominated twice. Once as Best and once as Supporting? Yes. Okay. So good for her. She is did a lot of great work, and I'm glad that she's being recognized. But if we have room to nominate Scarlett Johansson twice, I think we have room to nominate, I don't know, some people who aren't white women. Right. <laughs> yes. 10 writing nominations because they have original screenplay and adapted. Right. Only one of those is a woman, and that's Greta Gerwig's Little Women. And in case you're wondering, maybe there just weren't great standout performances that is by not women. not the case. Not the case. Greta Gerwig, first of all, Little Women is nominated for Best Picture and is nominated for Best Screenplay. But for some reason, she's not nominated as Best Director. Which is an interesting way to do that. Yes. She was nominated um, for Lady Bird in 2017, but she's not nominated for Little Women. And it's not like you can only be nominated once. It's not like... Obviously not. Right. Yeah. I'm saying like, there's not like, oh, we just nominated her. We can't do that again. I mean, that happens all the time. I mean, I don't think so. Barton Scorsese, as far as I know, was nominated every year. Right. So Steven Spielberg. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So Aquafina. Um, was in The Farewell, which is the movie about a family who doesn't want to tell a dying relative that they're dying. She won the Golden Globe for Best Actress. She won the Golden Globe for Best Actress, not even nominated for an Oscar. That's interesting. Yes. Jennifer Lopez in Hustlers. A lot of people think she should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actress. I haven't seen that movie, but... She was nominated for a Golden Globe also 
And if I'm not mistaken, I think she's also nominated for a SAG award for that, but not for an Oscar. I wonder if with somebody like Jennifer Lopez, if there's just this perception that she's not a quote unquote serious actress. Well, her first movie was her first big movie was her her playing Selena, which. Right. She did a great job. Again, that was a very serious role that got overlooked. She did an amazing job. Right. I think then she became more notable for her music career and made some like romantic comedy movies. Yes. I don't think that we could ever say she's not a serious actress. Oh, I'm not saying I'm saying that. I just feel like that's the perception yeah, well, of of her. Like, oh, she was a fly girl. She does SNL. She does these romantic comedies mm-hmm. that aren't great. So she herself is not a quote unquote serious actress. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that. Sure. But I I do see some of that there, I mean, backlash. There's genre bias that just holds on to people. Exactly. And. As a side note, right, a lot of people are mad that Adam Sandler didn't get nominated for his role in Uncut Gems and think that that has to do with genre Yeah, bias I think it's the same thing. Because he's known for being extremely goofy. Yes. And uh, Lupita Nyong'o wasn't nominated for her role in Us. Even I don't though get that one. She played two characters. And, really well. Um, and a lot of people think that's genre bias because it was a horror film. I think there's maybe multiple biases happening there that prevented her from getting nominated. But um, Frozen 2 also didn't get nominated for Best Animated Feature. And, of course, one of the things that we celebrate about Frozen is that is a very female-centered story that is not about romance and falling in love and marrying a prince. Exactly. It's about friendship. And it didn't end in a wedding. <laughs> it's about friendship and adventure. Sisterhood. And real relationships. And... Uh, not nominated for Best Animated Feature. I'm assuming that's just because of the horse, the water horse, which was just so weird to me. But anyway, um, I want to end talking about the Oscars by saying that Roxane Gay, uh, writer, feminist critic, bad author, feminist, yeah. Um, she wrote the book Bad Feminist. I am not calling her a bad feminist. Yes, I want to make that clear. Yeah, that is, that's probably an important distinction. She tweeted when the Oscar nominations uh, came out, Every year, the Oscar nominations are a hot mess, but this year offers a particularly heated mess to overlook Lulu Wang, Melina Matsukas, Greta Gerwig, Lupita Nyong'o, and J-Lo. Did the Academy even watch movies this year? Because the argument is going to be, well, if they didn't get nominated, it's because there was nothing to nominate. Mm-hmm. And that is just clearly not the case. Right. Just clearly. And sure, it's subjective. And I guess the other question is, why does it matter? And does it matter to my husband who wins an Oscar? Absolutely It doesn't not. matter to me at all. But I think it is, it's less about the Oscar itself and more about what it's telling us. It, it's because we value. Because the people who vote in the Academy Awards are the people who make movies. It's actors and actresses and directors and writers if you are a director, you nominate and vote in the directing category. Right. If you are, and so the reason it's important isn't because I love to watch the spectacle or I want to make sure my favorite person gets a special trophy. It's because <laughs> we're talking about how important film is to our culture that people who make the films are making these terrible decisions right. collectively. It's not like two white 
two old white guys in a back room of smoking cigars writing up the ballots. As a whole, collectively, we're still not moving forward. We're still not ready to recognize performances that aren't from people who don't look like us. Do you feel like we are entering a breaking point that nominating the same people over and over again will not be sustainable at some point? I mean, I don't I don't know how you how you save it. I mean, either you either enough people have to say this system is broken. Right. Which people do not like to do. (laughs) Just flat out. People don't like that. Right. And so you can't just rage at the Academy Awards because that won't change the Academy Awards. That that's likely to make them dig in. Right. So I don't know. I don't I mean, it has to definitely has to be people who have power and agency within the organization. So I guess what we have what we're saying here is it can't just be feminist podcast hosts and, <laughs> and, and people of color on Twitter. It has to be like white people who are members of the Academy who say acknowledging we other have stories. To, we have to do something about this. Yes. And I don't know how you do that, because, again, it's all a collective Well, I mean, there is something you could do, right? Everyone could just not watch the Oscars. Because if it doesn't make money, Mm -hmm. that will be the key to changing it. And honestly, I don't know who people are that watch the Oscars, but because it's not me. But if all of those people would just say, I'm not watching it this year because I think that would trigger some real change. Yeah, but we're still in the minority. I mean, even if all the people who care stop watching it, that's still most not most of the people. No, but I mean, that is how it gets on TV, right? Mm-hmm. It sells ad revenue and it gets people to watch. People want to know what people are wearing. Again, none of this matters to me. <laughs> but I could understand where if everyone just turned it off and was like, you know what? No, I'm going to watch fill in the blank here instead. Speaking of, you know what I'm going to watch? What are you going to watch? I'm going to watch Watchmen. Okay, so that was I, my That was, I, my, I, that was I, my cheap segue. <laughs> I don't know. I think Watchmen... Is. Oh, I love it when we play. What <laughs> does makes? What does Misty think this is? I think it's about comic books or something. Okay, it's not about comic books. I mean, it's a comic book adaptation. It is. So Watchmen was a it's graphic a novel, superhero thing, sort of. Uh, Watchmen was a graphic novel. Got turned into a movie. I don't know, ten years ago. And this is not a retelling of what happens in the movie. That's an important thing to know. The other thing is, I'm not going to give you spoilers, so I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end or give it away. Really anything that you don't this know. This is on HBO. HBO. So this takes place 34 years after the events of the comic book. Okay. So it is a, a different story happening within the world created in the, in the graphic novel. So we're not retreading old ground. We are right. telling a new story. We have some of those same characters, especially the ones who are immortal. Of course. Because, Why not? Because obviously they're not dead. Um, but we have mostly new characters. And we have the same kind of tone, so an existential despair kind of tone, but it is a different focus and a different story pretty much altogether. The other thing that's remarkably different is that the first episode of Watchmen features real historical events. What? So it's it's Black Wall Street in Oklahoma. Oh, Oklahoma, yeah. So I didn't know anything about it. I fear that people who watch the HBO show will think that it's entirely fictional. But okay, yeah, it's not. It's real. Um, so that's kind of a flashback 
The main character, played by Regina King, is Angela Abar, and she's the granddaughter of someone who was a child during Black Wall Street. Okay. So it's like a generational story? It's mostly focused on her, but it, it is... I mean, what Cause I would say is, yes, it's okay. how what happened then still impacts what's happening now. And, of course, that was about race and power. And oh, all the things historians <laughs> like to talk about. So she plays a police officer. And in the context of the show, uh, police officers wear masks to, okay. pr- to protect them from being attacked. Okay. And I, I don't want to tell you why, because that's part of you get into why in like the third or fourth episode. Uh, Jean Smart plays an FBI agent named Lori Blake, and she does a great job in that role. So we have two female leads in the show. And I mean, Regina King plays someone who is a cop. So she's running in the streets. She's fighting. She has this very cool costume Um She's very powerful. She's very smart. She's figuring things out. She's fighting dudes. I mean, it's a really cool depiction. And I think the other thing is, it's not just that we have a black woman playing this role, but because it is about the legacy of Black Wall Street, it couldn't be anyone other than so a person of color. A let's just throw somebody in a checkerbox. It's right. This character is built around these ideas. Exactly. So that's an important point. Navigating. And even though it is an alternate universe because it's taking place in this Watchmen world, she's still dealing with misogyny and racism and all of those kinds of things because she does work in a male dominated field because she's a law enforcement officer. And because even in fiction, (laughs) there are no utopias. And, you know, the original comic was a comic of its time. So, a lot of sexist tropes, a lot of misogyny. 60s, 70s? Lots of violence. No, I think it was from the 90s. 90s, okay. Oh, 34 years in the story, not... Yes. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I was confused. Torturing women, you know, just... Oh, good. A lot of the same tr- stuff that we've said about comics before. Heads in and freezers. <laughs> women in refrigerators. Yes. That's so close. <laughs> Almost had um, it. Uh so she's just a complex, capable woman. And so we not only got rid of all of that tropey misogyny, but we have just really dynamic, interesting, and unpredictable story. It goes in directions that you can't predict. And so it's just very compelling. And it's exactly what you were talking about before. It is as compelling to male audiences as to female audiences. Because it's a well-told story. It is. And there are male characters who are in prominent roles. It's not just like Lady Fest 2019 <laughs> or anything, but um, it is compelling. The I think that Watchmen is something that would appeal to people who have no clue, like yourself. Okay. So you know nothing about it. I think it would appeal to people who get all of the little inside jokes because they've read the comic, they've seen the movie. I think it would appeal to people who are casual fans. I I just think it's got a wide appeal, and I think it corrects a lot of the mistakes that maybe the comic made with ignoring females and people of color and not really being very authentic representation. somebody could jump in without having read the comics, and it would be okay. Yes. Okay. It might be a little... You might miss a few little in-jokes, but I think... But you you can watch it and follow the basic plot? Yes. I know that because I've read the comic... But I don't really remember things. So I got it all. I followed. <laughs> so it worked. Fine. 
All right, what else are you watching? So The Witcher is on Netflix. So I have heard a little bit about this, and I think I would hate it. You would hate it. In fact, the first thing I put in the notes is Misty would hate this show. (laughs) But it is very good. It's surprisingly good. And when I explain it to you, you're going to say, that sounds awful. But you're going to explain it anyway. But I think most normal humans would like it. It seems very popular. I've seen a lot of people talking about it. So it has a split storyline. There's three narratives. The primary narrative, the lead in the show is definitely The Witcher, who's played by Henry Cavill, who also played Superman. Okay, sure. But the other two narratives are both about women. One is focused on a female character named Yennefer, and one is focused on a female character named Cirilla. And they're both very powerful, interesting I guess, fully formed female characters. The show itself was created by a woman named Lauren Hisrich, and it's on Netflix. And it's actually already they're producing or they're in pre-production for season two, even though season one kind of just came out. Just came out. So it's based on a series of novels. Those novels were then turned into video games. There's a series of three video games called The Witcher. And the, the show is a little less predictable. So if you play the video games, you're still not going to know everything that happens in the show. It's the same character. So Yennefer is in the video game. Obviously, The Witcher is in the video game. But she dug into like older short stories to find a little bit of a more complex, rich narrative. And she wrote it in a more interesting way. It's interesting that it went to a video game before it became a show. Well, I think for a long time it was it seemed like it was like a niche story like only people who are really into like that. I guess it's a kind of fantasy, but uh I feel like we're probably going to see more shows like this. Yes. After the close of Game of Thrones. Yeah, so it's like it's, I feel like there's a market that's open now. Is it like medieval-ish? I guess I, it, like Renfair. It looks like the Renfair to me. Yes, okay. Um but with supernatural elements. So haunted Renfair. So the Witcher is a monster hunter, basically. He has special abilities. He goes through special training. His name is Geralt. Geralt? I saw the whole show. I can't remember how you pronounce his name. Um, He's like this big platinum-haired badass is what Den of Geek calls him. Okay, then. But he has these very unique skills. And so everybody in the land knows what a Witcher does. And what skills? So that's like a job. It's like blacksmith, but they're very rare. Okay, so you're not likely to come across many witchers in your life. He's a loner. He travels basically town to town hunting monsters, and his life's pretty dark because he kills things for a living. And he def- he develops these relationships: one with a like an ancient sorceress woman, that's Yennefer, and one with Princess Cirilla. And the thing that's interesting about the story is the three storylines aren't necessarily happening at the same time. And I don't want to give you spoilers. Okay. But they're not necessarily all running in parallel. But is it one of those shows where you have to keep track of like 50 different things? No. No. You just keep track of three things. Because I felt like that with Game of Thrones. Like I felt like there was way too much. I would say... That if you are generally interested in what was happening in Game of Thrones, but overwhelmed by... The I don't want to learn everybody's motto, and I don't want to learn the family tree. Right, the 20 different it's too much. warring clans. This is just three storylines. And they refer to lots of countries and places, but if you don't remember what Nilfgaard is, it's fine. I'm sorry, what was that one? It's Nilfgaard. Of course it is. 
Why wouldn't it be? Yeah. I would definitely recommend. And it's not realistic. Well, by, obviously. By any stretch of the imagination. But I think it does a great job of developing these narratives together and showing how these people rely on each other. It's not... I mean, he is a person who comes in to save the day, but he's not... They're not damsels in distress waiting for a man to come in and save the day. So would you describe it as a feminist show? I think so, yeah. I don't think it's overtly political. I don't think it's like, look at us and our strong female characters. (laughs) So it's not making a statement. No. Okay. I think it's just, it is. And so in that way, it is a feminist show. Okay. You want to talk about Little Women? You know, I don't, but I know that you do. What? How could you not want to? I mean, I just don't know if we needed another Little Women movie, but I think that you're going to tell me we did. So the movie's very good. In fact, I would say this movie is better than the book. Wow. That is high praise. Um, I like openly sobbed through like half of this movie. Wow. And... It's perfect casting. So you may or may not be familiar with Little Women. I am, yes. But but somebody listening to this is not. So Sorcy Ronan plays Joe March, who is the main character and is meant to kind of resemble the author, Louisa May Alcott. Meg is played by Emma. Meg is the one who is pretty traditional in terms of expectations of women at the time. Amy is played by Florence Pugh. Amy is the kind of jealous younger sister. Okay. And Beth, the sick one. (laughs) (laughs) That's her personality. Just the best way. I mean, she has a fully formed personality in the movie and the book, but that's the easiest way to refer to her is Eliza Scanlon. The mom is played by Laura Dern. Timothy Chalamet is Lori. And then, of course, Bob Odenkirk shows up at the very end as their dad. I will say that it is a movie about four relatively privileged white girls. Okay. They are poor in a sense. They they can't afford new clothes all the time. They don't always have a full meal to eat, but they always have food. They always have shelter. They go to parties. They're expected to get married to nice families. But I think it is still telling a kind of universal story. They have ambitions and interests outside of what's expected for them. I know it's supposed to be set in the 1850s, but I didn't know if there was like a specific year. Civil War times. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, go. Civil War times is a very specific time period. Civil War times. The dad's away in the Civil War. Go ahead. Anyway, so they want things for themselves. They want things outside of what's expected for them. They have these hopes for the future. Even Meg has hopes for the future that aren't limited or bound by Being gender, a wife and mother. gender role expectations. And I think one of the great things is that Meg is there. So she does genuinely want to get married and have a home and have children and be a wife and a mom. And it's not a matter of she's just doing what's expected of her. It's a matter she's very enthusiastic. It's a conscious choice. Yes. While she has sisters who want different things for their lives. And it's not presented as one is better right. than the other. Meg is not just like a loser weirdo. <laughs> Especially not in Civil War I times. Mean, there are definitely times when the sisters have conflicts and it's like, I don't want to go to this boring dance party and Meg does. But nobody in that scenario is portrayed as being the good one or the bad one. They so it's just not want... a moral judgment. Right. They just okay. want 
different things. And there's just a wealth of character. That's the easiest way to describe what's happening here. I mean... And you feel like that's what sets this movie version of The Little Men Apart? Well, that's true of the book as well, but I think... No, but the other movie versions. Do you feel like this one does a better job capturing the characters? Yes. Because this isn't the first Little Women ever made. No, I think the other movies, which, I mean, I know people who love the Winona Ryder movie and I don't have anything against it, but I think the previous movies put them in four distinct tracks a little bit more. And so it's like the smart one, the pretty one... The sick one. (laughs) Poor Beth. Um, So, but what Greta Gerwig does in this movie that's different from the book and from all of the others is she starts the movie with Joe being an adult. Oh, okay. That's an interesting choice. So, she's, I mean, it's a very short period of time. It's not a huge um, deviation from the script or from the book, but... It starts as an adult, and then we go back to when she was younger, and we tell most of the traditional expected little women's story, but we start with them as adults, and what I think that does is it shows us that these are the reflections of grown women, and so we are not just thinking about the story of four adolescent girls. We are thinking about the story of how these women were shaped by what happened to them when they were adolescent girls. Does that make sense? It does. Because you're saying the past like has consequences. Yes. And it shapes who you are. And so are. we're examining it through that lens instead of just saying, like, it's a story about growing up. It's really a story about how you grew up affecting your who adulthood. You, who you are. Yeah. And so I think that makes it just a little bit more not serious, but has more weight. Yes. The dialogue in the movie is a little different than the dialogue in the book. Which is good because dialogue wasn't necessarily the book's strong. Do they point. modernize it? They don't modernize it. It's not like a okay, a creepy, weird. It's still definitely set in the Civil War times, specific time period, but the dialogue is just a little richer. And I think if they do modernize it, it's to give us a little bit more of a focus on the rights and privileges that women have and don't have. And that's something that really bothers me when I watch a historical film and then somebody says like, oh, you go, girl. Like <laughs> that just it's a nails on a chalkboard does, to it me. definitely does not do that. Good. It's definitely still realistic to the time period. OK, that's good to know. So I think that NPR describes this adaptation best in their film review. They call it faithful but radical. And what does that mean? So it is it honors almost everything about the novel. So the relationships, the social commentary, the concept of narrative framing. But there are updates, things that make it still surprising and fun. So even if you've read the book, you've seen all of those movies, the, this one is still a surprise. There are still things happening that you don't know will happen. So it's not a shot for shot remake. No. And I was watching it and I was wondering, like, what's going to happen? I'm eager to find out where they're going or what the film is going to do. There is a little bit of a twist at the ending, which I'm not going to give away as a spoiler. But it's very good. And it, I think, adds yet another layer of meaning to the story, just like the opening it with a flashback adds a little bit of layer to the meaning. So... There's a there's a New York Times article called The Bearable Whiteness of Little Women. I actually read this. And it's kind of a reaction to some criticism of the movie. And that criticism is this is another movie about 
All white women. All white women who were relatively privileged. And I mean, if you're going to tell a Civil War story about women, why are we telling another one about white women when obviously what's happening to women of color in the Civil War is much more drastic and different story. So in the opinion piece, The Bearable Whiteness of Little Women, Caitlin Greenidge kind of pushes back on that criticism. She says she enjoys the movie. And what she said is, the film I saw was one that explored how the small decisions made in childhood affect a whole life's trajectory, how gender, birth order, social expectations can raise or dampen a spirit, and the prices paid for rallying against all of those constraints to declare a self. And she says the movie is very clearly not a piece of art that declares that this worldview is the only one that matters. So it's a more open story. Yeah, so it's a story about four women who not are the white. Story. It is not presenting itself in a way that says this is the worldview. This is the March family story. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So it's, it's what she says in the article is it acknowledges it is about the worldview of a very specific person, or in this case, the very specific people. And she said it's alive with curiosity and is intent on reminding us of the context in which they lived. She argues that it is a universal story or a story that that isn't as problematic as it may seem on, on the first surface. glance. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk to you about another Best Picture nominee that I have a very controversial opinion on. Is it Marriage Story? Because um, I feel like you've kind of not been excited about that one. It's real bad. It's real bad. Okay. So first of all, what I didn't know is that Greta Gerwig's husband made this movie. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Did you know that? I did not know that, but that doesn't change your opinion. It just... Does it make your opinion worse? Like, he should know better? So it it doesn't make it they're not married they're they're romantic partners they have been for several years but they're not technically married I want to fix what I said but uh it does make me maybe you had higher expectations So here's the thing I hated this movie almost exclusively and then I found out that Noah Bombeck was in this relationship with Greta Gerwig and I thought about it for a while and I and that's when I realized you know Scarlett Johansson's character as well as her mom, the the character of her mom and her sister, they're fully realized, interesting, complex female Nuanced characters. People. So that is a rarity. Yes. Unfortunately. And I think it's authentic. I think the film does a good job in that way. But Was I still... It's boring. I just don't like it. Yeah. Um, I love Adam Driver. I think he's fascinating. But it this seems to here's me... the, the easiest way for me to explain it is I get why people think it's good. It's very well written. Okay. And there are these long speeches that if I were to describe them to you, you would say, wow, oh, those are so well written. It's so perfectly made. But it's just kind of unnatural. It's not like Dawson's Creek where like people don't really talk like that. It's just not natural. It's too clean it seems real life is messy it almost seems like self-indulgent okay but their relationships the dynamics and the tensions anytime there's three or more people in a room in this movie it is super compelling you can't look away so in that way it's very well done anytime it's more than two people 
they create these tensions where these two people know something and these other two people know something and there's these relationships happening. And so there's a richness to it. I don't know. I feel like I'm not telling you not to watch it. You'll never watch it. You don't care. No. But I'm not telling people not to watch it. And again, if you like it, I get why you would like it. Or at least I think it's it's like being hit over the head with a very beautiful, perfectly made weapon. <laughs> okay. Do you feel like this is the type of movie that if you were yourself going through a divorce, maybe you'd relate to it more? I feel like this would be unbearable if I were going through a oh, divorce. really? Okay. I mean, I think it is that. It's emo- realistic. Okay. Emotionally accurate. Okay. I just don't like it. Like, I don't know. I, well, but, I think it also depends on why are you going to see a movie. If you're going for escapism, this doesn't sound like that. There's just not, I mean, I just, uh, I mean, halfway through the movie, everybody could have fallen off a cliff and I would have just been fine with it. Like, I just, whatever, you know, I just, maybe I couldn't relate to the characters personally. I couldn't tell you. I didn't like it. I couldn't wait for it to be over. And again, I love Adam Driver and he's in this movie, although he needs a haircut for the entire thing. And I, one thing I cannot stand is when people need haircuts. Really? That irritates you? Oh my gosh. Okay, then. I can't stand it. I had to stop watching the show Supernatural because the one of the brothers needs a haircut so bad I can't even watch anymore. That's not a joke. I feel like that's probably it's pers- more your issue. Oh, no, than- it's my okay. issue. It's 100% yeah. my issue. No question. All right. So I want to talk about a show that we both watch. Our Venn diagram apparently does overlap. Oh, that's right. Okay. Just a little bit. Okay. The Good Place. It's a great show. I love it. And I know that this season hasn't been your favorite. And I do think they're having some of the issues that you see a lot of times in a final season. Like maybe there's a little too much story or they had to cut things and they're rushing some things. Or there's things that they've always wanted to do and they're kind of jamming them in. Yeah, even if they don't totally make sense. So yeah. I can see those criticisms of this season. But it's still it's still good. I mean, it's better than 90 percent of what's on TV. Ex- exactly. It's worst season is still better than almost anything, almost else. anything else that you're going to watch. And I want to be super clear about that. When I say I don't like it. This season much, just wasn't your favorite. Right. I still want to watch every single episode. But I do want to talk about Brent for a while. I really like this character. I mean, I hate him, but so, I love this character. Here's the thing about Brent. So let's say for people who aren't Good Place fans. The 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 general idea here is that you die and you go to the good place or the bad place. And so our four main characters. Things aren't always what they seem. Have now met new characters who've entered the afterlife. And, and one of those new characters is Brent. And he is in the bad place because he's a turd of a human. <laughs> yes. But much, like a lot of people, he thinks he's in the good place. He is. It's a very high concept show. It's hard to explain. But he thinks he's in the good place. And he is. Um, when people rage about middle-aged white guys. In corporate America. This is who they're raging about. And he, yes. And he is the actual. He's like a, a satirical epitome. But at the same time. 100% could be a person in real life. It's so good. His portrayal of it is so good. Like, it, it is simultaneously over the top, but also... Perfect. Completely believable. And if you met him in a business the next day, you would 
think he was a real person. The thing that just killed me was there's a point where he's talking to the other characters. And while he's talking, he's doing practice golf swings. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I've known that guy in my life. Mm -hmm. He thinks Janet is his personal secretary. Yes. And he, you know, wants to smack her on the behind and get her to bring him cocktails all the time. And he doesn't understand why she can't do everything he wants because she's helping everyone. Right. I think the best part about Brent is that even though he is selfish and even though he, I mean, like, there's a lot of things about him that are crazy. At one point, they have an Escalade, right? It's an Escalade? Yeah, because he wants to drive around in a car. He wants to be driven around in a yes, car. Yes, that's true. And he, so he summons an Escalade and everyone's like, there's, we could have cars? There's cars? It had never occurred to anyone else because it's like... A tiny little cute neighborhood. A village or a neighborhood Why that would people you just that? walk around. But he gets driven around in this Escalade. Um, but he's he finds out that he's not where he's supposed to be. And they lie and tell him, you're right. You belong in the better place. Right. You don't, you're, you're, you don't belong in the good place. You belong in the better place. And he just immediately believes He's it. like, oh, yeah, of course, obviously, because I'm Brent and I'm great. I'm amazing. And the, the interactions he has with other people are, dying, I mean, it's just perfect. And especially with Chidi, because Chidi is the, the opposite of him. Exactly. I mean, Chidi is paralyzed in some ways by indecision because he's trying to find the thing that will hurt other people the least. And Brent is just like my feelings are the finger only gunning, ones that like count. yes, 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 <laughs> finger guns. And so, I mean, he—it's not like he doesn't care about other people. It doesn't even occur to him that other people matter. Yes, and um, so he's the worst. But what's crazy is. The fact that he believes he belongs in the better place is actually something that comes up in conversation all the time in my house. So if my husband and I are talking about someone who is just particularly loathsome. Yes. Right. And I'm, I just and I'll be like, I can't understand how this person doesn't see. And then I'll just be like, oh, it's like Brent in the better place. Like they're just so oblivious. Right. And they've never really struggled, right? There's no real exactly. conflict. Exactly. So, yeah, you are successful in business because you went to Yale, because you went to Because you were a legacy. School, because you, et cetera, et cetera. And they are completely blind to all of it. I feel like this character done in this way is going to be a mirror held up for some people. Not everyone, because Brent is not very self-aware. But I think you're if, much more optimistic than I am. I think I am. I think if some people watch this, though, they might say, oh, I have some of those tendencies or maybe I hold that viewpoint. And if Brett is the one that's speaking for you, sorry, Brent is the one that's speaking for you. That's a problem. I mean, you really honestly, truly in your heart believe people are going to watch Not this show. Not all people, a few people. And say, hey, that's me. No, I think they're going to say, hey, I do that. Or, hey, I agree with him when he says that. And if you know it's coming out of the mouth of the most terrible character ever created, then you maybe would stop and rethink those views. I don't think so. I think it's possible. I don't think Brent would. I think it's possible. Because he does get better. A tiny little bit better, but he got a little bit better. So other great things about the show, obviously the relationship between Eleanor 
and Janet Ta- and Tahani and Tahani. They have these very different female friendships, and Eleanor and Tahani argue, but they don't fight over men. They lightly sexually harass each other. <laughs> They're very complimentary of each other. Um, they help each other. They give each other advice. They're very gentle with each other's feelings. I love Vicky. Too. Vicky the demon. Vicky's, I mean... She's an excellent demon, and I love that she's female. And she's very good at her job. Yes. She's very um, effective in her role, and she can think of new ways to make things better. So she's a strategic thinker. She had... She's evil, but she, she is demonstrating extreme competence in the workplace. She had the best line in the last episode. She said, I'm a strong, independent acid snake in the body of a strong, independent woman. <laughs> I loved that line. It was so perfect. It's it's good. It's good. Yeah. All right. So other things that I'm watching that you are probably not. I'm, I'm just surprised you're watching more than one thing, to be honest with you. Well, I watched The Devil Next Door, which I really don't feel like fits in this discussion at all. No, it does not. Because it's about Nazi hunting. But I do want that. It, I recommend it. Keep going. It'll make you think. Keep going. The one I really want to talk about is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Okay. Do you know anything about this show? I think um, it's supposed to be funny. It wins a lot of awards. Yes. And I think maybe someone's a singer? No. Okay, so seasons one and two. It looks really bad. It looks extremely boring and lame. I'll be honest with you. It's set in like, what, the 20s? No, you have no concept of time. It's set in the late 50s. Same thing. Season one and season two are amazing, excellent, wonderful. Really? They really are. It looks extremely boring. I I think I could see that. I don't even remember why I started watching it. And I thought I was going to hate it. And I didn't. I really like it. So uh, Mrs. Maisel is married. She is living in an apartment in New York City. She has a husband who is a very young executive. She has a son. She has a daughter. And in the 1950s, that's kind of the perfect life, right? That's exactly what she was supposed to do. Yeah. We also find out that her mother, when she was a child, trained her not to make noises in her sleep. If she snored or if she made any sniffles or coughs, her mother would wake her up, training her to be a good wife. So she's lived in a very closed society. There is one way to be a woman. There is one way to be a wife. There is one way to be a mother. Yeah. That's it. Then her husband has an affair with with his secretary and... They are... Does she go on a killing spree? Because that would make this less boring. <laughs> no, but she becomes a stand-up comedian. And would she... I laugh? You would. Mm. And she meets some real historical comedians like Lenny Bruce. Who? Do you know who George Carlin is? I think. It's like the pre-George Carlin. Never heard of him. Okay. This is why it's hard when you don't teach history to talk to people. Because No, no. This is why you need to get better at talking to people who don't teach history. Because, by the way, people who teach history is a pretty small subset of people. I live in a closed world. And you need to learn how to communicate with others without just sighing and looking disappointed. <laughs> I don't know how to talk to you. Okay, so You've anyway. You've never heard of blah, 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 blah. So season one and season two are about her breaking off from her husband, exploring this new world. Really challenging some of the expectations she's Learning had for Learning it's life. okay to snore. Yes. Actually, yes. And it's so good. And the thing that I really loved about season one, season two, is that she's not perfect. She's kind of a terrible mother. Like, she's always pawning her kids off on somebody else. 
I feel like every parent on a TV show does that because kids are like boring to the story. So this is happens so in, happens in Grey's Anatomy a lot. You're just like, where are their kids? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Who cares? She asks sometimes, where are my kids? <laughs> who has my kids? <laughs> like, it's just completely oblivious to her that maybe she should be involved in that. Season three was just so bad. Honestly, if you're going to watch it, just stop at season two and pretend that's the end. I'm, I'm not going to watch it. I know you're not. It, it, it looks so bad. Their clothes look boring. Like, oh, I really? see, like, advertisements for the show, and I see what they're all wearing, and I'm just like, ugh. Some people no. really like the clothes. Some people are, like, I'm really sure, into that. I'm sure it's perfectly well done. Okay, so season three, the, my issue with it is that in seasons one and seasons two... Yeah, give me some good reasons to hate it instead of just, like, <laughs> it looks boring. So seasons one and season two have established that Mrs. Maisel is a smart woman. That she is starting to pay attention. She's reading the newspaper. Do we have to call her Mrs. Maisel? That is the name that she goes by. Okay. Yes. And then um, in season two, she starts reading newspapers. She gets a little bit political. She starts saying that people should vote for Kennedy instead of Nixon because it's 1960 now. Mm -hmm. So you're establishing a worldview of a woman who is breaking away from her husband, who is paying attention. Mm -hmm. In season three, she becomes the opening act for an African-American singer. Mm Mm-hmm. And it takes her till season, sorry, till episode seven out of eight to question why he never stays in the same hotel that she does. Are you kidding? No. Why is that not the focus of the whole season? Exactly. We're in the height of the civil rights movement. And if you weren't going to introduce that, why would you introduce an African-American character that's touring the country with her? If you were going to completely ignore that. That's a huge fail. That's a huge fail. I mean, why don't they make the entire season about that? Yes. Thank you. There's also some... Because, yes, it's set in the civil rights period, but it's also airing in a period where race is something that is talked about on a daily basis. Yes. She's also Jewish, but that very rarely comes up in a significant way in season three unless it's the butt of a joke. Whereas in the other seasons, you actually see some Jewish holidays and some Jewish celebrations. Season three, it's just a joke. There's also an LGBTQ issue where, again, this woman who is supposedly very smart and is supposedly paying attention accidentally outs somebody in 1960. In 1960, that would get someone killed. It could, for sure. It's not something that you would stumble into. If you were going to do that, it was a malicious decision. Or you're a huge idiot. Or you're a huge idiot, but you've spent two seasons telling me she's not a huge idiot. So which one is it? Man, that's bad. Also, her ex-husband gets a new girlfriend who is a Chinese-American woman who is going to medical school, which sounds great. Sure. But then the portrayal of her is that she's from a family that owns a Chinese gambling den in New York City. Like, could we be more stereotypical? Are they chain smoking too? Yes, of oh course. Oh my gosh. Yes. They're playing like, uh, what's the what's the one with the... I don't remember what... Mahjong? Mahjong? I mean, Mahjong's not a gambling game, though. No, but they're playing that in the background a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's just very, very, very stereotypical. Could not be more stereotypical if it was trying to be. So if you're going to watch it... show. Thanks for bringing it up. I brought it up because I feel like seasons one and season two did such a good job. Mm -hmm. And it, it is, like, personally disappointing to me that season three... Just fell off a cliff so badly. Well, despite the fact that Amazon is one of the evil empires of our lifetime, they started airing. Is it airing? Streaming. Streaming. How old am I? 
Okay, they started, boomer. They, they're streaming Mrs. Maisel yes. and Fleabag, both very prominent female characters. Female showrunners. Female showrunners. Comedies. And I feel like... Which I, a lot of times women don't get to be the lead character in a comedy. It's the same problem that we is impressive. talking about earlier, right? There's so few women that get those chances that when it doesn't go well... It, it feels like a disappointment for the entire gender. We're all going to get sent back to the typing yes. pool. Yes. Yeah. And especially when the expectations for this season, I think, were so high. Mm-hmm. Maybe unrealistically high. Maybe there was no way they were going to make people happy. It sounds like a lot like what you are saying happened to um, Handmaid's Tale. Yes. Yeah. I think expectations were so high, it was never going to be met. Yeah. So I think they thought, let's just throw everything in. There wasn't much representation. Well, and I'd be interested to see how much diversity there is on the writing staff. Probably not as much as I would like to see, I'm guessing. Yeah. But just throwing in a character that's LGBTQ, just throwing in an African-American man, just throwing in a Chinese-American woman. Mm -hmm. We've talked about before, that may be diversity, Mm -hmm. but it's not representation. Right. And those are different things. Yeah. I want to, before we move on, I want to say a brand new show just started and you would definitely hate it, but I have to bring it up. Okay. Okay. What is it? I'm showing a curveball here. It's not in the notes. Please don't laugh at me. Okay. It's called 911 Lone Star. <clears throat> just hold on. So, you know, there's these uh, 911 shows, they're drama shows. You know how we were talking about being personally disappointed in people? Yes. Okay. It's fine. So, they're very, like, formulaic shows about first responders. I feel it's kind of like law and order, but for firefighters. Yeah, firefighters. Um, and I think previously the whole franchise has been set in Chicago. And this is a different... It's not really a spinoff because they have no characters in common. It, it's just law and order. A second... <laughs> Criminal defense. Well, no. SVU. Law and order characters sometimes cross paths in any way. It doesn't matter. That's not important. This one has Rob Lowe. Okay. And Liv Tyler. Okay. Rob Lowe's the captain of the firefighters, and Liv Tyler's the captain of the paramedics. I don't need to know whether that's realistic or not. They're in Austin, Texas. Okay. Okay. He sets out... So, it's a very interesting setup. I promise I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I know... That it's a disappointing show for me to watch intellectually. It's wild. Like, just crazy stuff happens every five minutes on this episode or on this show. But when the show starts, the DOJ has been investigating this particular firehouse because of issues of diversity in the city of Austin in terms of firefighters and first responders. Meaning there have been so many complaints about that the Department of Justice had to step in. The, the lack of diversity that the Department of Justice had to step in and say, we have to change the way. We... And that's a thing that does happen. So they hire Rob Lowe, which there he makes a huge commentary. Like, if you're trying to be more diverse, why are you hiring a white guy? And he moves to Austin and he hires. I, I mean, I don't think that the ACLU could have put together a better team. Uh, a Muslim woman. A trans black man, his gay son. I'm trying to think. There's a storyline in the first episode about undocumented immigrants not having access to health care. For some reason, when I watch it, it doesn't seem that stupid. (laughs) (laughs) 
Like, it sounds very like... Is this how you felt when I was talking about Mrs. Maisel? Maybe. I, I don't know. But if I, if you break it apart into those components and you say, okay, they're checking off all of these boxes right. with the storylines and the diverse characters. Oh, and they have like this kind of hillbilly guy who was on the original squad and he doesn't... Oh, and le- he loves diversity and he's super excited about change. But he's married to a black woman. So there's just all of these interesting dynamics, but it's 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 good. <laughs> They they encounter racists in the field. This woman who <laughs> they accuse her of being a racist and she she fakes a heart attack. And then she's like, she doesn't want the Muslim girl to give her CPR. And then she asks this guy and he's like, OK, ma'am, but I want you to know I'm a homosexual. And she's like, no, not you. You can do it. She says to the black guy, she's like, see, I'm not racist. He can give me CPR. And he goes, all right, ma'am, but I'm trans. And then she's just like, oh, uh." and it's just a very funny, interesting scene to see them all together and working together and being firefighters. I don't know. They eat tacos and they make barbacoa and it's good. Okay. I'll believe you. I'm not going to watch it, but I'll believe you. I take that back. It's not good if you were like to use an objective standard. It's wild and completely unrealistic. But if you're going to make a wild and completely unrealistic show about first responders, if you're going to make a totally formulaic, turn your brain off, watch some crazy show. Escapism. At least they made it well. At least they made it thoughtfully. At least they said, you know what? We're going to make a silly, goofy firefighter show. Let's be very intentional about who we put on the show. I think that is a sign of progress. and and Because you could have easily made this show and made it like... Walker, Texas Ranger, but with fire trucks. Which, is, by the way, is exactly how my husband describes the show. <laughs> like, to the word, Walker, Texas Ranger with fire trucks. Nice. They, they do go to honky tonks, and it's, it's Texas. <laughs> but, uh, again, the other thing is the, the demographic, the intended audience of a turn-your-brain-off firefighter formulaic show is tends to be older white people. So maybe this is introducing right. some new ideas in a less threatening way. And so it's kind of like what you were saying about Brent. Maybe they see the kind of hillbilly guy who resists the change. Or maybe they see the old racist lady who doesn't want any of them to touch her. And maybe they see that there are things about their behaviors or beliefs that are prejudiced or kind of icky. I thought you were an optimist. Lone Star 911 changed my oh mind. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, this is forever changed me. This is definitely I'm a, not an academic discussion I'm a new, anymore. I'm a new person. I don't know. I, I It's on Hulu. I say, just watch it. Not you, Missy, because you're never going to watch it. But everybody else just I got so it. many Nazi shows. I can't be watching that. All right. So what are we looking forward to watching in this coming spring aside, or summer? Aside from Grey's Anatomy. And which apparently Lone Star 911. Or 911 Lone Star. <laughs> I can't remember which one. All right. Well, I am excited for Shrill Season 2. I'm excited for Brooklyn Nine. Nine. You almost called it 911, didn't I you? I did. <laughs> the Good Place finale is coming up. I'm super excited about that. Yeah, it's like this week or next week. It's crazy. And yeah. then it's just going to be done. I know. That's going to make me sad. But does that mean Mike Schur is going to make a different show? He has to, right? Like One could that's hope. That's his thing. One could hope. If he could make a story or a show just about Moe's from The Office, because he played Moe's, I would for sure watch that. Uh, I don't think that's a show. I don't think you've got a show there. But luckily, audience of one. Luckily, you teach history, and he yeah. makes the TV shows. Yeah, no, we're we're in the correct so. lane. Allegra, what's next in your lady life? 
I'm reading Little Fires Everywhere, which I know everyone read like two years ago. I don't know what that is. It's a novel. It's oh. by Celeste Ng. Okay. It's called Little Fires Everywhere. Sure. It was like the most popular, one of the most popular books of like two years ago. And of course, I didn't want to read it because everyone was reading it and everyone was recommending it to me. And then I was like, And you oh. have to be a... I have to... <laughs> you have to be yourself. I have to find it for myself. I have to be the one who decides that I'm going to read it. So now I'm reading you it. You can't tell me what to do. Exactly. Look, I, I know where my flaws are, okay? okay? I'm completely honest about it. But it's very good. I would recommend it. I'm glad you found it. I'm going to finish reading it and then probably grade, you know, unlimited numbers of papers to infinity. That sounds about right. What about you? What's next in your lady life? So, as you know, next, you're boring. Next week. Sorry. What? We are going to talk about Texas women. Unstoppable Texas women. And so I have just been watching a whole bunch of Molly Ivins interviews. And I'm not even the one doing Molly Ivins. I just yeah. got sucked in and it's There's, amazing. There are worse things to watch for sure. I miss her so much. So I've been kind of falling down this rabbit hole. So I think my next uh, rabbit hole is going to be Ann Richards. I'm going to go watch a bunch of her stuff. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty and I'm going to recommend The Good Place Finale. I'm Allegra, and I'm going to recommend Grey's Anatomy, which of course. just <laughs> came back last week. We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode. Would you like us to discuss in the future or how great you think we are? Which is extremely great and very funny. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at ProfessHers, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address, ProfessHers at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all those things, and we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend. And remember, women should get Oscars, too, because uh, I don't know if you know this, Misty, but women, they're people now. Yes, I've heard. So 